because we now have the Cinema Giant! Hello and welcome to the Cinema Judge. To all my regulars, welcome back. If you're new to the show, welcome aboard. And if you are new to the show, let me just give you a brief description of what the show is about. We at the Cinema Judge, we love movies. And we love to share movies. We're not here to criticize actors or anybody or Hollywood. We like to share and talk movies. This is like a movie oasis. The studios, they give us these film, cri- film clips and interviews. And what I do, I put them all together to make one cohesive, like, infomercial. So then you can just make up your own mind. I provide you the evidence. It's that simple. You you know what you like. We all have had different paths getting here in life. Mine's different than yours. So I just give you the evidence. Because that's half the fun. Not having somebody tell you, oh, this or this is bad, whatever. Who am I to tell you? I just love movies. So in a nutshell, that's what this show is. And at the end of the show, if you want to watch the TV version of this, because I do make a TV version that goes on cable access here in Bloomington, Minnesota, I'll give you that webpage, and then you can watch these interviews and scenes if you so desire. Because it is so fun for me just to dive into a movie. Because not every show or every movie is a blockbuster. Not everything is a tentpole. I love finding little gems of movies. It's like, wow, I want to share this with somebody. Or whatever, you know, stuff like that. Because sometimes you get so... You know, used to the same old, same old, but it's those little gems that I love finding and sharing. Because in the end, any movie is somebody's favorite movie. In Approaching Bench today, we might have one of those little gems for you. That is up, you know, that's up to you to decide. This movie's called The Outfit. Now, let me give you the brief synopsis of what this movie's about. An expert tailor must outwit a dangerous group of mobsters in order to survive a fateful night. Now, that's just a real quick synopsis. And you're going to hear a lot more from interviews later on. And I'm going to tell you, there are some really good interviews. I just, they kept, you know, it was rare that you get this many just choice interviews. Because this movie is very intimate. It's not your typical mobster type movie. It almost all takes place in one room. This guy's a tailor and he's an expert at it. And of course, being 1952 or early 1950s, in Chicago, there's a lot of mobsters. And they come in, he doesn't ask them what's going on or anything. He doesn't want to get involved. So there's a lot of tension going on in these conversations of what does he know? Then if other people start coming in and saying, have you seen this person, etc., etc. You know what? I'll just, here's the trailer for the outfit. You've been all over the world. You could have a shop anywhere you like. And yet you're here. It doesn't terribly much matter where I am. I have my shears. What else does a man need besides his shears? This isn't art. This is a craft. You cannot make something good until you understand the customer. Do we let all of our customers keep black boxes in back? If we only allowed angels to be customers, soon we'd have no customers at all. Please, sir, I don't want any trouble. I need you to listen carefully. 
There are a thousand blue boys out there hunting for this. And if they find it, I start shooting. You follow? Making matters worse, there are a thousand racket boys hunting for it too. And if they find it, they start shooting. You follow? Don't want to be involved in whatever it is you do. You know exactly what it is that we do. Whoa. Full house tonight, huh? Have you ever heard of The Outfit? The Outfit is a network of every big-time crew from Santa Monica to Coney Island. And tonight, they've sent us a message. They're hiding something, my friend. I'm gonna need that tape, pal, right now. Why don't you try and take it, gentlemen? It's gonna be a long night. Sew him up. What? I can't. Sew him up. You need to tell me what really happened in here tonight. Now. You got five seconds to tell me what happened. Open the trunk. What? Open the trunk and grab his arms or I'm hiding two bodies. Five. A number of things about me that you don't know. <laughs> Four. Who's the tape, Francis? Three. I'm telling you, this is the truth. You want to survive the night? You look them dead in the eyes, and you pretend you're one of them. Now, coming up first, we're going to hear from the director, Graham Moore. Now, this guy's pretty young. He's new to this, not really new. He, he wrote the 2014 film, The Imitation Game. This guy is very talented, and that's what I really like about today's Hollywood. So many more voices are being heard, and more people are you know, getting their stories out there. And that's so encouraging because that's what keeps movies alive and fresh. New voices, new visions, and just new blood. Now, this is a great interview. He talks a little bit about the story, but I just you can just hear the passion in the guy's voice when he's talking about this piece, that he really researched it and, and he cares about it. So here is the director just talking a little bit about the story and the main character, Leonard. The outfit is about an English tailor who used to cut on London's world-famous Savile Row, who, after a personal tragedy, has ended up in Chicago in the 1950s, where he's opened up this little corner tailor shop, and the only folks around who can afford the fine clothes that he makes are a family of vicious gangsters. So the outfit is about um, this tailor's relationship with and increasing involvement in um, the lives of the gangsters for whom he tries to make beautiful clothes. When we started writing the script, something we were always fascinated by was the psychology of people who spend their entire lives perfecting the art of something so esoteric that most people cannot even tell their experts at it. Um, someone who, someone like Leonard, played by Mark Rylance, Someone who is such an expert at what he does, he makes these beautiful things, and no one even, the people he makes them for, don't even totally realize why they're so good. He's that good at it. He's, it's, there's a loneliness to that. Um, and there's something about the psychology of that, of someone who devotes his life to something that esoteric and that specific, and to be one of the best in the world at this extremely specific thing is such a fascinating psychology to me. And I think that's what initially drew me to the story in the first place. Um, before we had a story, before we knew there were gangsters, um, before we knew there were guns and blood and the kind of thriller we have here, we had this character of Leonard. It all started with this character. 
Now, speaking of Leonard and doing stuff for people who don't really understand or can't appreciate what that person does, we're going to have a clip for you. Now, in this scene, we have Leonard, played by Mark Rylance, and he's sitting there in a chair, leather chair, knitting, or maybe sewing is a better word. I don't know. He's he's doing that stuff that you do when you're making a suit. He's just sitting there in the chair talking to this young gangster, and this young gangster is, you know, you're getting a little bit backstory on him, like, hey, what brought you to Chicago? But it's just the great tone of this scene. They're both just sitting there in chairs, and Leonard is just calmly talking to him, giving the you know the story, just in this very soothing delivery. It's just one of those scenes in this film where they really show these intimate one-on-one conversations in a little duel, a little discussion, getting information. So here's a scene from The Outfit. I studied for decades to be a cutter. I used to cut on the row. The row? Savile Row. Where's that, North Addison? It's in London, a quarter of a mile in which the greatest craftsmen in the world all ply their trade. I apprenticed there for years before they allowed me to open my own shop. Why'd you come here then? The war. What, crowds by me place? Worse, they're called blue jeans. After the war, things were quite poor in England. Not a lot of men could afford well-made things. So these blue jeans became all the rage. Well, times change, pal. Blue jeans are the fashion now. This James Dean of yours makes one picture. Blue jeans are the fashion. Soon he'll make another. Something else will become popular. These fashionable things, they don't last. The things I make, like that suit of yours, Mm. is timeless. See what I'm saying? What a great tone. Now, you might be asking yourself, who is Mark Rylance? I know that voice. Well, he was in the 2015 film, The Bridge of Spies, the 2016 film, The BFG, Dunkirk in 2017, The Trial of the Chicago 7 in 2020, Don't Look Up from last year in 2021, and also the 2018 film Ready Player One. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But what a talented actor. But now in the next interview, we're going to hear again from the director. And he talks a little bit more about the writing process and how they came to this conclusion of of, of the story. And I just love this interview because it's just these little nuances, little things you could come across that changes the story completely. You might be stuck going... Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And it just could be one line that you read, and that changes everything. Jonathan and I just kept asking ourselves, what's the story here? What's the story? We love this character, but what's the story we want to build around this character? And that's when, after years of exploration, um, we were reading this one book about the history of Savile Row, and we found this single sentence that mentioned that the first bug in the history of the FBI, the first bug in FBI history, was planted inside a tailor shop in Chicago, Illinois, in 1956. And we instantly looked at each other and we said, oh, well, that's a movie. We loved the idea of the 50s of this period, like the last the last gasp of this beautiful culture that happened before fashion took over. It was also a really interesting period in terms of the gangland history of the time. Once we started digging, once Jonathan McLean and I started digging into the gangland history of 50s Chicago, it was instantly captivating to us because as America was going through profound changes, so was the underworld. That is just such a great interview. Just reading that one line, they said, bam, 
and then they were able to write the rest of the movie. For me, those little things are just gold. Now, up next, we're going to play another scene. Now, in this scene, we have Leonard. He's talking to another gangster. Leonard is standing on almost the other side of the room. The gangster is, like, shutting this briefcase. And he's just like, hey, you know, just take it with you. I, I, I don't want any part of this. And, and here starts some of that dance of, hey, I don't know anything. But then he kind of says, yeah, you do. You, you know what's going on here. But it's that little ballet of just building that tension little at a time. I'll be back. Take Master Richie with you. This is the safest place right now. Please, at least take that, that thing with you. Too many hard boys out there. You've been loyal customers. I depend upon you. Not once, not once have I ever asked about your business. I don't, I don't judge. I just don't want to be involved in whatever it is you do. English. You know exactly what it is that we do. No, sir. I, I actually don't know anything. I don't know what that is. I don't know why all these gentlemen are looking for it. If they come here, I won't be able to placate their suspicions. I'm useless to you. I'm a liability. I, I only just want to be left alone. But you're not alone, English. Like it or not, now you're part of the family. Uh, no pressure for that guy. Oh, part of the family, am I? Uh, thanks. I mean, I can't even imagine me put in that position. You're just trying to placate these people, just saying, hey, I just want to do my thing, you do your thing. But nope, now you're in it and they you feel owned. I mean, it must be just terrifying. Now, in this next interview, we're going to hear again from the director. And he's going to talk a little bit more about the dialogue. And what I'm saying by that is he gets into what, what not necessarily what they're saying, but what the other person's hearing or and just that whole thing of trust and how claustrophobic it could be, but very cinematic. It's just a really good interview. Just here he is. The outfit is in many ways a chess match between all of these different characters. Um, and what's helped in that is there are not too many characters in this film. There's only seven speaking parts in the entire film. So every character gets quite a bit of screen time. Um, and more than that, every character gets quite a bit of listening time. As we're, as we're making the film, something we find a lot is that the story is not on the character who's speaking. It's on the character who's listening and trying to decide, am I being lied to or not? If I'm being lied to, do I need to kill this person? That's where the story is. And there's something so inherently cinematic about that. Um, you know, the, it's set in a small space with a small cast, but yet it feels so inherently cinematic to me because those looks between the characters, someone looking very closely at someone else from just inches away and saying, are you lying to me? Do I have to kill you now? You can't do that on stage in a piece of theater. You cannot get that close. Now, coming up next, we're going to hear from Zoe Deutsch. Now, she's been in a lot of work, and she does a lot of producing, too. But a lot of you might remember her from Zombieland Double Tap. <laughs> Those movies are just spectacular. Just in case you've never seen Zombieland or Zombieland Dub Double Tap, check them out. But anyway, she's in that. She's also in the 2016 film Everybody Wants Some. 
2017, Before I Fall, 2016, Why Him, Flower in 2017, and Set It Up in 2018. She's a young actress, but she has a great future ahead of her. I really can't wait to see where she goes in the future. Now, in this interview, she talks about how great the script is. One of the best scripts I've read um, so many years. And I I actually read it years ago. Uh, and I, I, I got to meet with Graham in L.A. And then about a year later, there was a table read in New York when I was working there. And so I got to do that. And then I continued to just email and bug and hope and uh, wish. And then a year and a half later, we're here in London. So I, I've, um, I've been, Mabel has been on my mind for years. This movie and this story has been on my mind for years. And it's very cool um, for it to all be happening. And that's just one of the great examples of movies take so long to make. A lot of times in our minds, we hear something's being made and blah, 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 then it gets made. But sometimes the pipeline for these movies are a lot longer than we could possibly imagine. And how much like an actress like this, she's known about it for a couple of years and she kept, hey, what's going on? Kept inquiring about it and just knowing it's not just another role, but it's something that she really felt, you know, powerful about. It's just really kind of cool. Now, in this next interview, we're going to hear from the director talking about Zoe. Zoe Deutsch is an actress who I've been an admirer of for a long time. Um, and when she first called and said she was interested in doing this, I was I was so excited because it was something I'd never seen her do before. Um, and and the idea of that was really exciting to me. Zoe Deutsch is actually the, the first actress I ever met with um, for the role of Mabel. Um, and ever since that day, um, over over the two years it took to to get this film started, um, I, I always kept hoping it would work out with Zoe because she just seemed to instantly get it um, and instantly get what we were trying to do with it. Now, coming up next, we're going to have more interviews with Zoe. And these, there's several interviews here. She talks about the characters, the relationship between Mabel and Leonard, and just more about the story. And I'm just going to let these play through because she has a lot to say and I don't want to interrupt her in the middle of all these, each one that's a little separate. So anyway, here's Zoe talking about the movie and everything else. Mabel and Leonard's relationship is is very much so father daughter um, uh, esque. They don't communicate that to one another or or, or talk uh, in in those terms. I think it's far too vulnerable for both of them. They've both experienced immense loss in their lives, so it's an unspoken bond and and um, and friendship. And they both look out for each other. Uh, in a really special way. Mabel wants to leave Chicago so much because it represents all of her trauma. Uh, she's been forced into this life of, of um, violence, corruption, uh, and she wants a way out. And she wants it on her own terms. She wants to, she's very independent. She's very smart. She's very... Uh, strong, and she is going to get out of Chicago, and she will do anything that it takes. Mabel understands that that Leonard has to allow the, these gangsters to use this shop and to do business there, 
Um, she, again, she's grown up on that street. She understands how it works. She understands what they that they own a piece of all of this, and there really is no other option. If there was another option, she would have taken that uh, <laughs> that route. So she, I don't think that she judges Leonard for that. Um, it's just you know you you know what you know, and that is what she knows. I think she, once he starts to at one point poke fun at her at her relationship to one of the gangsters, she has no option but to fight back and be like, you're no better. You're being a hypocrite. You make clothes for these people. You make money off of these people. You let these people do business in your shop. We're the same. We're doing everything we can to survive. Everyone underestimates her because she's a woman and because she's assumed this role of how she's supposed to present herself around them and how she's supposed to act and what she's not supposed to say and what she's supposed to say, again, out of survival. Um, but that being said, she also has had to learn how to be her own predator in her own right. So, um, and that means, like I said, assuming this role that she's expected to play. So I, I definitely think that they underestimate her. Now, coming up next, we're going to play a clip. Now, in this clip, we have Mabel and Leonard. And they're at the, just sitting in the back room. They're folding, you know, pieces of fabric for suits. And they're having that little banter, how she talked earlier in the interview about they have a father-daughter type relationship, but never talk about it. And as an example, this scene is very similar how maybe a father would be talking to his daughter going, well, maybe you shouldn't talk to these guys. They're not really on the up and up. But he knows, too. She's no, she's a strong woman. She knows what she's doing. She's not going to be pushed around. She knows what she wants in life. But it's just fun to see that little banter, that little concern in a conversation. But her saying, you know what? I know what I'm doing. I do not need you telling me who to date. I didn't mean it like that. You meant it like, I saw you smiling at Richie Boyle earlier, and now I'm petrified that you're running with a bad batch. Those men may be customers, but they are not gentlemen. Could have fooled me in those nice clothes you make for him. If we only allowed angels to be customers, soon we'd have no customers at all. Do we let all of our customers keep black boxes in back? It was you who was smiling at him. I've spent my entire life around animals like Richie Boyle. You want to get him to back off, you look him dead in the eyes and you pretend you're one of them. You don't need me worrying after you. That's right. That is just a great little scene. Just that fun conversation between Mabel and Leonard. In the next interview... Zoe talks about the costumes involved in this movie, but then she also talks about the rarity of shooting this movie in order. That And that rarely does happen, so it's really kind of fun that this is what they did with this movie. They just shot it in order. We have the most wonderful costume designer, Sophie, who has, you know, had to put together so much in such a short period of time, and... uh and has been so brilliant in, in carefully constructing these characters and their their world. Um, Mabel doesn't have much, and the money that she does make, she's putting away to get out of Chicago. So it was very important that we were careful in not, you know, getting too wrapped up in the glamour of 1956 and how fun it is and how beautiful and sexy and cool and, and, and really focusing on, um, you know, what is real and authentic to Mabel. 
I really wanted her skirt that I wear in most of the film has, we've kind of put some holes in it and some patches on there. She has one coat, um, uh, you know, one hat, it, it, same bag, two pairs of ratty socks. It's very, I wanted it to feel, again, like this is not her priority. We've been able to actually, because this entire movie takes place on one set, we've been actually able to rehearse it in chronological order and then now shoot it in chronological order, which, you know, is extraordinarily rare. I've never had that experience. I know very few people who have. Mark Rylance and Graham Moore were very um, adamant on having that time, which is just the greatest gift and the most fun. So, uh, it, you know, that... That was just such a special, unique experience. And like she said, very few movies do that, where they shoot it in order. And off the top of my head, I don't quote me on this one, but I think John Hughes did it with The Breakfast Club. I'm not saying it did, but I thought I heard an interview where that last scene, when Judd Nelson is walking you know, through the football field and he puts up his arm, in real life, he just kept going. He never even came back. He just kept walking. Again, I'm not saying that's true, but the case here is it's rarely done. So it's really kind of cool. But up next, we're going to hear from the director. And he's going to talk about Dylan O'Brien, who plays Richie. And he talks about how Dylan sent him a tape because he goes, I want to do this film. And he's talking about, wow, nobody sends tapes. But what he sent me was just perfect. Dylan O'Brien is an actor who I've been just a huge fan of for a long time. Um, and he came to this project with a lot of passion. He, he sent me a, an email out of the blue. I had never spoken to him before. And I just got an email from him saying, Hey, I got a copy of the script. I love this. I really want to do it. Um, here's a tape. He sent in an audition tape unprompted. Um, and it was Dylan O'Brien's audition was one of the best auditions I have ever seen for any part in my life. It was so good that I immediately sent it to Mark Rylance and said, this is one of the best auditions I've ever seen in my life. And Mark wrote me back 20 minutes later and said, yes, this is one of the best auditions I have ever seen in my life. This guy has to be in the movie. Um, there's there's never any part I've been more sure about than, than Dylan O'Brien. He's such a joyful presence on set. You know, if you're a listener to the show regularly, you know I've said this before, but if you're new, I think you'd agree with me. I love hearing the stories about the whole process of how somebody got a role how they auditioned, and how much passion they had. That's the kind of show I could get into. Make a reality show about the process of making a film. From the person writing it, submitting it, pitching it to all the places all around Hollywood or wherever you want to, wherever they go to pitch it. That is a story I could get, I could get into. Now, coming up next, we're going to hear from Dylan O'Brien. Now, you might know him from Teen Wolf, The Maze Runner, Infinite, Curb Your Enthusiasm, in Love and Monsters, just to name a few. I was obsessed with the script from the second I read it. I told Graham this story, like I read it on a plane and I stood up in my seat when I got to the end of it and I applauded, which is a true story. Um, it's just an incredible piece of material, you know, and I think um, um, I just, I don't know, it's just extremely rare to come across like something like this. And I was just so taken and blown away with it immediately. I loved Richie. I loved that role. I was so shocked with the uh, uh, the turn in the middle of the piece, you know. And and it's just you know it's it's 
again, I, I guess it's just, it's just the kind of piece of material that doesn't come across your desk very often. The most enjoyable aspects of playing the role or being a part of this at all um, has just been every piece of it. I mean, it's, it's everything you dream about doing, like in a movie, you know, when you're growing up, it's all the cool things you wanted to, uh, that you fantasized about, you know, like, I mean, the suits, the smokes, the swagger, you know, like it's, uh, it's just dripping with the kind of stuff that like is, is just a dream to play, you know? Um, and then when you add the depth into that, that the, that every character is layered with, um, and again, sort of that chess match that ensues and like, I mean, it's just so clever and so fun and um, and so colorful. The costume in this film is absolutely a part of the fabric of the film, um, a huge piece. Uh, yeah, I'd had conversations with Graham early on about like what Richie's kind of um, style is. And, you know, it's interesting. You sort of see everybody's character in their fabric. You know, the outfit is... Um, uh, each of their outfits that they wear. It's, you know, we all sort of have a, a mask. Not everyone is totally um, what they seem to be, you know what I mean? And I think the clothes go, uh, play a huge role in that. Um, the costume department has been unbelievable. And the suits that, I mean, I had like my suit, you know, made at Huntsman, which is incredible and it's the nicest thing I've ever had on me and I, I don't deserve to be in this uh <laughs> in this nice of clothes um um but yeah I'm sort of the you know I'm flashy I'm as flashy as it gets you know um I think Richie likes to present as much as he can this cast has been amazing um to work with it's been a really fun experience and I think different for most of us um um in terms of like the prep process and the rehearsal, it's really felt like we were, we've been like putting on a play, you know, like a proper like stage production. Um, it's one location, you know, so we have control of uh, shooting in sequence in order, you know, um, to shoot in sequential order is like absolutely unheard of. I don't, I'll probably never do it again in my career. So that's been incredible to be able to tell the story beat by beat as, uh, you know, we're living the story as we're telling it. So that's been amazing. And to be, yeah, uh, it's been a really, uh, it's a really smart group of actors and I've learned something from each of them, you know, and it's, I think it's incredible because we're led by, um, you know, a guy who is just, uh, just such a master of his craft and, and also just such a really, really great and open human being and willing to, uh, share, um, you know, what he knows and what he's practiced and what he's learned. And um, <laughs> so it's it's really just been such a, I mean, there's no words. It's It's been beyond just a pleasure of an experience. I mean, this will be something that I'll, I'll be so special to me forever. I'll always remember it. Graham's amazing. I love that guy so much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like genuinely, he's, um, uh, you know, he's just, he's such a great person and, it's a, and and such a brilliant writer, you know. Um, but uh, it's the former sort of that, you know. Ultimately, like really matters most, obviously. So the fact that uh, he's just such a kind guy and such an open guy and such a fun guy too, you know, um, I think really influences how great he already is as a director. You know, I mean, this is his first time even stepping into that role, and 
Uh, I think he's got really incredible instincts in terms of, you know, trusting um, his actors and his crew and the team that he's assembled. And as far as building that team goes to, I think he's got incredible taste. I play Richie, Richie Boyle, um, who is kind of the heir to the Boyle family throne, I guess. Uh, he's the son of uh, uh, Roy Boyle, who sort of runs the business, you know, runs the block, kind of owns the neighborhood, you know. So Richie's very, uh, um, comes from a very sort of privileged uh, upbringing. Um, he wants to be, uh, well, he feels very empowered in the, in the family business. Um, he kind of runs the show. He runs the crew a little bit. He's sort of the, uh, he's sort of the number two behind his pops, you know. Um, he calls the shots. Uh, he's probably a little protected around town, too, you know. Um, um, oh, he's a gangster, by the way. We're going to play a clip next. Now, in this clip, we have Richie, we have Leonard, and we have another gangster in the room. And they're having this discussion of what should go on. Should they wait or move on? Because Richie says, hey, let's wait for the old man to get here and we'll discuss this. And Leonard's like, listen, guys, this, let's just talk about this. Feel this little dance that happens in the scene. Check it out. Why don't I go with you? No, no. You're in no shape to be out there. So you want to walk out of here with this tape alone? Is that right? That's right. I'll tell you what. Just wait for my pops to get here, you know? Then we can all listen to the tape together. We don't have time. What's the big rush? Every second the rat is alive is another second that your father is in danger. Gentlemen. <clears throat> I know your father, Master Richie, your father, want you both to take a deep breath. Now, as you said that, my father, my father, Francis, it's my father who's in danger, not yours. Ah, uh, what I tell you, a little dance going on there. Now, coming up next, we're going to hear from Johnny Flynn, who plays Francis, and he was just in that last scene. Now, Johnny Flynn, he's been in Emma in 2020, Beast in 2017, The Score in 2021, and also in 2021, The Dig. If you've never seen The Dig, I strongly recommend it. It is so well done. It's based on a true story, and it is just... It's actually, you know, like lack of a better word, just beautifully shot. Check out The Dig. I believe it's on Netflix. But coming up next, Johnny Flynn talks more about his character, Francis. Francis is, uh, he works for the Boyle family. Uh, and the, the sort of head of the Boyle family is Roy, played by Simon Russell Beale. And, uh, but he is not, He's not an actual member of the family. He's the only the the only kind of gangster mobster you meet who's not um, in the family, and he's worked his way up. He's earned the trust of of the boss uh, through just being a kind of brilliant foot soldier. And um, in the story, he's taken six bullets fairly recently for for Roy. So he's. Um, yeah, he's ambitious and he's, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but he's, um, 
he's pretty cold when it comes to what he's prepared to do to kind of uh, put himself ahead. We're going to hear next from the director. And <laughs> this is a really great interview. He just, he's kind of in awe of Johnny Flynn going, what can't this guy do? I'm not sure there's anything that Johnny Flynn can't do. He makes records. He goes on tour with his band. He does plays. He does films. He does all sorts of plays. He does all sorts of films. I feel like every time I talk to Johnny about what he's going to do next week, it's he's going to turn around and say, oh, I'm going to go do a puppet show in Australia or something. There's always some crazy thing he's going to do next because the man seems to be a limitless well of talent for anything he touches. Now, coming up next, we're going to hear a little bit more from Johnny Flynn. Francis is, um, he's kind of like a number three, if you like, underneath Richie, played by Dylan. Um, Roy is the head of the family. And, you know, they are, um, they're not, um, they're not a huge operation. They, they have their turf and they, um, they're, they're upwardly mobile, you know, they, they want to, uh, take over more territory and stuff. And I think at the point that you meet them in the story, um, they are, they think they're making inroads with, um, a larger organization called the outfit, which was a real, um, uh, mobster gang operation run that was started by Al Capone in the thirties. And it kind of spread out. And so it's this big thing that is spread across America. And they think, the, the Boyle family think that they're kind of getting into the outfit, basically. Um, and Francis has been part of that, and he's really ambitious for the for the family to get into the outfit. And he is, um, uh, yeah, he you know he's he's like he's it's sort of a favourite for Roy in some ways. He's um, potentially like the son that he wished he had. Maybe um, he's much more practical and ruthless than Richie, who's the actual. Um, uh, son so uh, he's yeah it's an invaluable part of this organization Francis and Richie have a strange relationship because um, you know Richie is the heir apparent he's the first in line kind of thing and Francis is biting at his heels by being um, more efficient and kind of practical than him and um, they're just very different personalities which makes for a very really cool kind of dynamic in the scenes with with Richie played by Dylan and I loved um doing that stuff cuz uh Dylan was fantastic and lovely and uh and very funny and so perfectly cast and we it was just great doing that kind of playing the playing the tension and enjoying being these different characters but yeah Francis is arguably um very cold and efficient you know he's made for this job basically but richie is has his sort of weaknesses which makes him a very you know interesting character but maybe not the best mobster francis is um he's he's dead set on the thing that will give him the most power basically and he um he's absolutely ruthless in pursuing that and um uh yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to talk about it without kind of uh, giving things away. But he, you know, he's prepared to throw people under the bus to get where he needs to go to, basically. We're going to hear next from the director. And he's going to talk about this film, about you really just can't watch it once. Cause there's so many things happening, twists and turns, that 
when you watch it once, you're like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to, you know, rewatch that. And those are some really great movies. We all we all have those in our personal arsenals out there where we go, I could watch this movie dozens of times. Or like you're like, well, I I, I don't know if I got that. I, I need to watch it again. But that's what he's saying here, that this movie is very textured and you might need to watch it twice because you might want to watch it twice. And after that, we're going to hear Zoe talking about the director. I think the outfit is a uniquely cinematic experience because it is a white knuckle thriller. It is not something you want to experience where you're looking away or you're being pulled away. It's something, it's an experience that, the outfit is an experience that we want to create for the audience where they're gripping the edge of their seats in a movie theater and they cannot let go. The Outfit is a film that is not intended to be watched once. It's a film that's intended to be watched three times. Um, There are twists and there are turns. And every time you think you figured out when someone is lying to you and when they are telling the truth, you will find out 10 minutes later that you were wrong. Um, And that means that we got to build in lots of fun little Easter eggs and clues to the eventual twists throughout the film. Um, it was really fun to set something up where I think the audience, of the outfit spends a lot of time going, what you think, you know, what's going on, but maybe you're wrong and you're trying to figure it out. And that kind of mystery of who's lying to who runs through the entire film. And that's part of our ever increasing sense of tension for the film. So finding, it was lovely to plant lots of little clues in there that hopefully no one catches on the first time where they watch it again and go, oh, that's when they were lying about the thing and the other thing, um, which should hopefully create a, create an experience of watching the outfit that is not just watchable, but endlessly rewatchable. Graham Moore is our brilliant writer and director, and uh, it's funny you just said that it's his first time directing, which... Even hearing that is shocking to me. Such a beautiful director and so calm under pressure. Amazing actor in sight and instincts. Well, I hope you enjoyed our in-depth look at the outfit. Now, if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, any way to improve the show, let me know. Cinemajudge at Hotmail.com. That's Cinemajudge at hotmail.com or Instagram, the cinema judge or Twitter cinema judge. Cause I can't fix if I don't know what's broken. If you think I should do this or don't do that, let me know. Cause I want to make this show as enjoyable as possible. Now, if you're interested in watching the TV version of this, go to Bloomington, Minnesota's webpage. That's BLM is in Bloomington dot MN backwards slash BTV dash shows. And just type in Cinema Judge, and a whole bunch of shows will show up. Well, that is it. Everything from here on out is me just thanking you, the listeners, and me just talking a little you know, about music and this and that and giving a special bourbon shout-out. Now, for everyone all around the world, I hope my voice finds you well. For everybody who listens, whether you're driving to work, coming back from work, sitting at work, whatever you're doing, I really appreciate it. In a, <laughs> I talked to a couple listeners during the week, and some of them, when they're walking to the train or to the bus stop, they're listening to the show. So if you're doing that this time, I truly thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope you get to the train okay. So wherever, whenever, or whatever you're doing, this is for you.
to all my listeners in the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Germany, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Ireland, Taiwan, Dominican Republic, Indonesia, and France, and so many more because so many other people listen to so many other episodes during this week. I can only name a few, so thank you. Minneapolis, Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota, Christ Church, Canterbury, Denver, Colorado, Queens, New York, New York, New York, thank you so much, New York, Honolulu, Hawaii, thanks so much, Hawaii, is it Henrico, Virginia? Thanks, Virginia. Charlotte, North Carolina, Lily North, Washington, District of Columbia, Mesa, Arizona, Tampa, Florida, Concord, California, Manteca, California, Pasadena, California. Is it Strasburgs, Pennsylvania? Thank you so much. Hamilton, Ontario, Madrid, Union City, California, Burnsville, Minnesota, Pacifica, California, Holyoke, Mass, Chaska, Minnesota. Is it Tenafly, New Jersey? Thank you so much, New Jersey. I really appreciate it. British Columbia. I think it's Chilwack. I don't know if that's true or not, but thanks so much. West Fargo, North Dakota. Huntsville, Ontario. Thanks. Windsor, Wisconsin. Berlin. Thank you so much, Berlin. Dublin. And so many more. And now for all the ones I can't pronounce, this is for you. Santo Domingo Este, province of Santo Domingo II. Taichung, Taichung City. Frankfurt am Main, Hess. Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Lille, North. Jeddah, Mecca Region. Riyadh, Riyadh Region. Tanjung Radeb, East Kalimantan. And this week's bourbon shoutout goes out to Ebony, Sean, and Mike. You late night crew at Cub, you guys always make my night. <laughs> Every time, because I work some crazy hours, so I usually go in there pretty late at night. You guys always just have time to talk to me. So thank you to all of you at Cub. You guys are awesome. Cheers. Now it's time for the music section. This episode, I think, took like five or six hours to make. So I had a lot of tunes I was playing in the background when I was making it. I first started off with the Alan Parsons Project. I remember seeing them, or seeing him, a couple years back. It was such a great concert. Those songs have just been singed into my memory. If you ever have time, listen to the Alan Parsons Project. They have incredible music. And if you don't know where to start with them, listen to the Definitive Collection, Disc 1 and 2. That will pretty much give you a pretty good feeling of what they do. Then I moved on to Jefferson and Starship. In a, it was kind of a collection of Jefferson Starship, Jefferson, Jefferson Airplane. I have a kind of a greatest, greatest hits that I created with them. And I just, you know, oh, they have some great songs. And then I moved on to, you know, Sticks Greatest Hits. Again, just endless tunes that these people have. Well, that is it. My glass awaits. I'm thirsty. So cheers to you into the movies. So until next time, be well, be good, and I'm gone. I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening to The Cinema Judge.